Dr. Fergott is an undergraduate degree at William & Mary. He got his master's degree from Villanova in 1995, uh, and Dr. Klieger was his thesis advisor. He got his PhD from University of California at Riverside, where he studied personality and quantitative psychology with doctors uh, David Funder and Robert Rosenthal. Um, I should note that I was also a graduate student at the University of California Riverside when Mike was there. Um, I was two years behind him, so I'm much younger than Michael. <laughs> um, but one thing that's interesting to note is while he was there, the younger cohort, my cohort, we all looked up to, to Mike, and I'm not really sure why. I mean, I, I don't know if there was this education from Villanova that helped him or just him, but we all kind of knew that at some point he was going to become a really successful uh, researcher in personality and quantitative psychology. In fact, I still remember my first during my first couple of years there, we would go to Mike's office and we'd kind of like hang out in his door jam and we'd say, hey Mike, how's it going? I got a question, can you help me figure out this analysis? And Mike's such a nice guy, he'd always say, okay, even though I'm sure he was doing a hundred things. Um, since then though, He's a, a, a graduate, obviously. Now he's an associate professor at Wake Forest <coughs> and is a McCullough faculty fellow. Uh, so he's actually had the distinction of being at Villanova, William and Mary, and Wake Forest. So he has a thing for high-tier uh, master's programs. I'm not really sure why that is. And it's kind of funny. Even nowadays, um, I still find myself asking Mike for help. Um, if I get an article submitted to the journal Personality that's somewhat strong and quantitative, I'll often send Mike an email and I'll basically say, hey Mike, you got this paper, do you mind reviewing it? And again, he's such a nice guy that he says yes pretty much all the time. Um, but I'm guessing that's going to stop soon. Uh, he is a consulting editor at several top tier journals now, including the journal Personality and Social Psychology. Uh, he's the associate editor, editor now of the Journal of Research and per Personality. He has dozens of research articles which have been published in top-tier journals, which have been cited hundreds of times. He's the author of the textbook Psychometrics, um, which has been translated into different languages. He's received various grants on uh, uh, topics ranging from character, drinking patterns, and borderline personality disorder. Um, and he's still a researcher that I still look up to uh, to this day and that I always hope that when I reach his age that I might accomplish as much as he has so far. Um, so it's my honor to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Michael Furr. Well, um, uh, thank you very much, Pat, for that uh, introduction. Um, <laughs> It was actually much nicer than I had anticipated from you, so that was nice. <laughs> um, as uh, Pat uh, kind of alluded, uh, my research interests are, are somewhat eclectic, um, including um, uh, interest in measurement psychometrics and statistics. And um, I'm in, in receiving uh, Tom's uh, email asking if I would be interested in being here, and I very much was, I was thinking, well, what can I do? How can I express my, my sincere appreciation um, in, the, in the talk that I give, and, and I'm going to do that by not talking about measurement psychometrics or statistics. <laughs> um, 
but to talk about something um, a little more um, in core personality and social psychology, and in particular some work that uh, I've done and uh, my colleagues and students have done on uh, personality perception. Um, as my, uh, uh, I guess, cute um, title of my talk um, alluded to, um, how many people watched the Super Bowl back in January, February, whenever it was? Okay, okay, pretty good amount. Did anyone watch the, um, the pregame interview on Fox with O'Reilly and Obama? Okay, a few people did as well. Well, in, in that talk, there was actually something interesting, I thought, um, uh, particularly from a social and personality psychology perspective. So let me just read you a little bit of the transcript there. Um, O'Reilly, at one point, um, says, well, people who, who know you have told me that you've changed a little bit since you've become president. And then, so do you think you have changed? Um, Obama says, well, if you, if, you if you ask Michelle, who knows me best, or, or if you ask my closest friends, I think they'd say I'm basically the same guy as when I came in. And then uh, O'Reilly kindly offers to tell him uh, what uh, they actually did say. Um, and and O'Reilly says, well, they, they say you're much more guarded than you used to be. And in fact, they go on to say you're not as light as you used to be. You're not as spontaneous as you used to be. And um, Obama, after an interruption or two, um, says, well, I, he kind of finally acknowledges, well, I suppose that's possibly true. Maybe, maybe I have changed. So I thought that was kind of interesting um, because it points to several, um, I think, interesting and important questions from the perspective of personality social psychology. So one of these questions is how accurately do other people understand who you are? So um, um, Obama says, you know, if you ask Michelle, who knows me best, or my friend, so he's pointing to other people as valid sources of information about his personality. Um, kind of on the flip side of that, though, there's the, there's the uh, real possibility of discrepancies between one's self-perception and the perceptions that other people may have. So, for example, um, Obama initially says, well, I'm basically the same guy as when I first came into office, but O'Reilly says, well, no, actually, other people say differently. You're not. You're more guarded. You're not as light as you used to be, and so on. So there's certainly a possibility of discrepancies, discrepancies between self-perceptions and other people's perceptions. And then finally, do we actually know how we're seen by other people? Um, O'Reilly kindly offers to tell Obama what the, uh, his friends and family say about him. And Obama, perhaps being polite, I don't know, agrees to say, OK, well, well, tell me what they say. And I think that this illustrates at least two things. One is I, I, I assume that there's at least some genuine interest in knowing what other people think about you. And it wasn't just a, a flight thing for the cameras. But also, it, it suggests, if I can really ring this little <laughs> example for all it's worth, is to say that um, um, we might not know what other people think of us. There might, we might not, not actually have a clear sense of, of how, we're, how we're seen by other people. Um, <laughs> and the other kind of facet of my, my cute uh, title here with the office and Obama and Riley, um, by the um, uh, reaction, I know that some of you at least are familiar with our friend here, Michael Scott. Um, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure, uh, Michael Scott is a character on The Office, and he is uh, possibly one of the most socially awkward people I've ever seen on television <laughs> in my life. And it's hilarious, um, but it, honestly, for me at least, and I imagine for a lot of people, it's actually somewhat painful to watch him sometime subject, him, subject other people to his personality. Um, and uh, Steve Carell, in, in one interview that I, that I came across, was um, talking about you know, what he thought was going on with Michael Scott. You know, what, what, is, what is Michael Scott's problem? And Carell says, well, he has a, a blind spot. He actually doesn't understand how people truly perceive him. So again, this leads to questions about the discrepancy between self-perceptions and other, uh, other people's perceptions and knowing how we're seen by other people. Okay. So what I'd like to do with that uh, kind of introduction is, is spend a little bit of time today talking about three uh, somewhat, at least somewhat related issues, uh, self issues that are uh, at least in the literature called self-other agreement 
which is basically the question of to what degree do you see yourself as other people see you. Um, we'll get to the other two later. And, and the goal for this talk, what I would like to do is to um, talk about some of the work that I've done in this uh, area with some of, uh, my, again, my friends and or my colleagues and students. They are friends too, I didn't mean to not <laughs> dismiss that. Um, and, and by doing so, actually really kind of give you what I think is a perspective on, on um, work that not just I've done, but that other people have done in this area to get a, a sense of what, what we uh, currently know about this stuff. Okay, now I'm not gonna talk about all of this, but um, why should we care about this? Aside from the cute little examples of Obama and O'Reilly in the office, why should really, we really care about issues of, gee, do other people see you like you see yourself? And there are all kinds of reasons, actually. Um, I'll just mention a couple of these. Uh, well, again, thinking about the example of Michael Scott, there is, of course, the possibility that these kinds of things, misperceptions or discrepancies between self-perceptions and other perceptions, um, can lead to interpersonal problems and, and ultimately possibly to intrapersonal problems in psychological distress. What I'm a little more interested in are a couple of the other things. Um, the idea it, within hum the study of social cognition, we heard a little bit um, earlier about social cognition, um, but within the kind of the core social psychology and personality psychology of study of social cogni uh, cognition, particularly since the, since the 60s and 70s, um, there was a real emphasis on the errors that people make when we think about ourselves and when we think about our social world. A lot of the research um, in, in this area was showing the biases that we um, slip into and the flaws and the errors and mistakes that we make. So you can come away from that literature thinking, well, we don't do a whole lot right when we think about ourselves and our social world. <coughs> so I think that's kind of in the sense of human nature and understanding psychologically what are we capable of doing and what do we tend to do, um, I think this is a pretty fundamental question. Um, I, I, again, I won't, in the interest of time, I won't go into some of the other um, issues but, that I put up there, but I will say that I think that there are a number of theoretical, practical, and methodolo even methodological reasons why the questions we're talking about are, are important. So let's talk about this first phenomena of, um, that I mentioned, self-other agreement. Um, again, here I'd like to talk about two questions, one of which is just in general, what is the kind of the overall general levels of, of self-other agreement um, when you ask people to per judge themselves and judge, judge others? Um, given my methodological interests, and I won't uh, subject you to too much of this, I'll also say that um, I became kind of interested in does the answer to that question, you know, in general how accurate or how, how much agreement is it, does that depend on how you examine it? If we have, if we kind of look at, uh, look at the question from this perspective, look at the question from that perspective, do we get the same answer or are we tapping into different things if we look at it in different ways? Um, again, so there are multiple ways you could approach this question. I'm just going to, in the interest of time again, I'm just going to focus on one that I've been calling the person-centered approach. Um, I did want to at least acknowledge uh, another one, this, um, what I've been calling the person differential approach, because I've been currently, or I've been working on this um, over the last couple of years with a, a graduate student in the master's program at, at Wake. Um, she was an undergraduate at Villanova, her name is jo Joelle Fanchulo, and we've been working together for a couple of years on this, and we're going to be, present she presented um, uh, this work uh, a couple months ago, and we're going to do so again this summer. So how can we think, what is this person-centered approach to studying personality, uh, personality or self-other agreement, I should say. So the question over there is, does a given judge understand which traits are most characteristic and least characteristic of a given target? So just to, just to make sure we're all on the same page, again, I want you to kind of understand how this research is done a little bit. So let's imagine we have a, an esteemed professor, Topino, at Villanova back in, say, 1993. Um, and a, and a, a new graduate student walks in to his cognition class. And after a little while, we ask Dr. Topino, what do you think of this new guy? That is a guy, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we ask uh, Tom, 
to rate this target person on several personality traits, let's say extroversion, emotional stability, and so on and so on. And so we see this is how Tom sees this target is relatively high in extroversion, maybe a little lower on conscientiousness and agreeableness now. Um, we then ask the target to, again, consider himself and, and provide the ratings on the same set of traits. And we compute the correlation, you can't see it too well down here, um, compute the correlation between those two sets of scores and that correlation reflects the degree of agreement. Again, and we see here that's a positive correlation. Um, it's not a perfect correlation, it's a positive correlation reflecting the fact that, for example, the target participant sees himself as relatively high on these two traits and somewhat lower on these others, and Tom generally has that same pattern. So what do we get when we examine uh, self-other agreement from this person-centered perspective? Well, this is just, again, some representative data from a study that um, I, I did with some colleagues in the psychiatry department. And this is actually ratings that mother, this is self-other agreement based on ratings that mothers did of their adolescent kids. Okay. And so what we have is a, an agreement correlation for every single pair of mothers and kids, about 100, uh, a little more than that, actually. And so what we have it here are just the uh, histograms reflecting the distribution of those agreement correlations. So if we just look at that top panel there, again, what we see is that, um, as you can see from the histogram, almost without fail, the agreement correlations were greater than zero. The, the line kind of in the middle of the panel reflects zero, which would be you know, a lack of agreement. Um, so they're almost all above zero. And the mean of that distribution is 55, which is uh, significant. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the, the second panel down there is what uh, I've been calling distinctive agreement. And that's a way of essentially doing a similar kind of analysis, but trying to capture the degree to which two P, uh, a judge and target person agree on what's unique about that target, how that, part, how that target is distinctive and, and not like the average person. So it's actually a very conservative way of seeing the agreement between a judge and target. Do you know what's actually really different about this person? But even when we do that, the, as you can see, the agreement scores were primarily above zero, and the mean was lower, because this is a more conservative approach, but still a significant at uh, 0.27. Um, so in answer to this first question, you know, what's the general level of agreement? Um, I think uh, from this approach, this person-centered approach, and the others that I at least uh, uh, kind of pointed to, from all three approaches and other approaches that we've looked at, there seems to be good evidence that people agree that the way you see yourself tends to be the way you're, you're seen by others, for the average person, at least. However, um, if we go back to those uh, histograms for a second, there's variability. Yeah. Not, not everyone was at 0.55. So some mothers had much less agreement with uh, their um, adolescents than others. So there certainly is variability, which raises interesting kind of questions like, are some people easier to read than other people? Um, there are all kinds of other questions you could ask too, but um, just a, a, a quick <laughs> foray into that. Um, in the interest of time, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there's evidence out there, some, some work that, again, that, I, that I've done with some colleagues and some, uh, some other people, showing that in general, when people are psychologically healthy, they tend to be easier to read. Actually, I'm thinking it might be interesting to um, look at schizophrenia um, as well. Where did Dr. Tan go? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, schizophrenia might be kind of interesting to look at. Somewhat, I, I think, kind of uh, more interestingly, though, is something that uh, one of my current graduate student, Ashley Hawkins, and I um, found, and we're going to present uh, this summer also, is that um, what we're calling behavioral authenticity, people who are behaviorally authentic um, are judged in a way that corresponds more to the personality. And, and what we mean by that is that people who, who say they act as they truly are, that is, they act in a genuine way. You know, some, we don't always <laughs> maybe put ourselves out there in ways that we, I think, you know, truly fit ourselves. When you do that, 
people pick up on that and they actually recognize you for who you are. So um, one thing that can affect whether how people see you is again the, the degree to which you act like your true self. Um, personally, I think this actually is kind of more interesting on understanding the phenomenon of behavioral authenticity than self-other agreement, but I think it's, it's kind of an interesting finding. So let's move on and look at this um, uh, phenomenon of interjudge consensus. And that is a question of, do other people agree with each other in their perceptions of you? Okay. Um, again, I'd like to take a look at a couple things just in general, what do we find? And also something I think has important implications for personality and behavior, which is, what if we ask people who know you from dramatically different social contexts? You know, your family, your friends, your professors, <laughs> people from different contexts, do they see you in the same way? Um, do they share a common uh, view of you? Um, let me just get right to some results here. This is, these are some data, um, or these analyses are some data that I collected with a, um, one of my uh, graduate students, Erica Carlson, um, where again, what we did here was look at that person-centered agreement here, person-centered consensus, looking at the correlation between one judge's ratings and another judge's rating of a given target subject. And again, we have distributions here reflecting the, pat the distributions of agreement across the, the pairs of, of people. Um, I will say that um, if we kind of just focus on the, the left two panels there, um, in the, we did the study by having our target participants were undergraduates at Wake Forest, and they came into the lab and they, were, they provided, um, uh, they nominated up to six people, mom, dad, a couple of college friends, a couple of hometown friends, and we contacted all of those people and had those people rate the target subjects, okay? And so then we could look at the agreement or the consensus scores between every pair of judge, every pair of judges for every uh, target person. Yeah? Quick question. Uh, mm -hmm. What dimensions of personality are we, are there these correlations or, or uh -huh. are they all together? These are, these are correlations that are based on the big five, so emotional stability and extroversion and those, the, the ones that were in that earlier list. So all, all merge? Right, yeah, so if we go back to that person-centered, it was a correlation <coughs> across traits. So again, you can think about it as kind of, do the, do the judges agree on which traits are more and less a characteristic of a given target? That's right. There are other ways of doing it that would be a very different approach, yeah. So what we have here is, um, again, when we look at agreement scores between judges from the same context, like between mom and dad, or between a couple of uh, college friends, we get you know, a pretty strong level of agreement, 0.56, everything is mostly. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But what I think is more interesting is that when we, when we looked at agreement for judges from different social contexts, so mom, to what degree does you know, mom's perception correspond to the college friend's perception, or dad's perception match the hometown friend's perception, even in those different context um, uh, um, uh, uh, situations, we're getting pretty dramatically large consensus um, agreement. Um, and again, when we, um, in, the, in the right two columns, we have, the, again, the more conservative, distinctive consensus. To what degree do judges agree on? What's unique about this person? So even in that case, and even when we're looking at that from people from different social contexts, we're getting pretty, pretty good levels of agreement. Okay. So um, moving on to the last question here of, of what's called meta-accuracy. And here the question is, do you know how you're seen by other people? So I like to think that I'm smart and charming and witty, but maybe that's not true. <laughs> maybe people don't actually see me that way. So, and you'll have to ask Pat about that. Um, but here, the question we're looking at here is, do you know who sees you as more friendly and less friendly? Or do you know who sees you as more extroverted and less extroverted? Well, if you think about that for a minute, um, and if you think about the, curr the, current recent, the current kind of prevailing wisdom in personality and social psychology, then the answer to that question is you probably don't. You probably don't know who sees you as 
more or less friendly or more or less extroverted? And the answer may be um, from personality social psychology is you may think you do, but you probably don't if you're the average person. Um, and, uh, and that's uh, perhaps, somewhat, perhaps somewhat counterintuitive, but again, I was, my uh, graduate student uh, Erica Carlson and I were thinking about this and what we realized that was the, the most, if not all, of the research that has kind of produced that prevailing wisdom has been done um, in a way that we thought was kind of an unfair test <coughs> of people's ability to understand who sees them or to demonstrate, let's say, who sees them as higher or lower on given traits. Okay. And the reason we thought that was a lot of the research that's been done in that area kind of has judges who know the target from the same exact social context. From, and so basically the judges have same information about the target. We thought, well, then they probably have same impressions of the target, which makes it really difficult for a target to figure out how the judges see them differently. And that's the task here, is to figure out who sees you differently. If the judges see you the same, then <laughs> you're facing a, a quite an uphill battle here. So um, what Erica and I did, this is actually from the same data that I had mentioned a few minutes ago with the consensus. So we have, again, target subjects. We have ratings done by mom, dad, hometown friends, and so on. And also what we had um, in the data set was we had our target participants rate their perceptions of those judges' perceptions. So how do you think your mom sees you? How do you think your dad sees you? So we call these meta-perceptions because they're perceptions of perceptions. Um, and then what we did was for each target, we computed, again, a correlation coefficient for every target that reflects the degree to which that target was kind of accurate in knowing which judges see him, uh, saw him or her as being high on a trait or low on a trait. And this, we did it separately. We did this analysis separately for extroversion, and, and so this is a different way of approaching the question. Um, so there are, there are several interesting findings, I think, in this study, but let me just, let me just um, again, in the interest of time, focus on one. Um, was that across all five of the traits, the, the famous big five personality traits, which actually I heard of for the first time in Dr. Klieger's class. <laughs> um, for all big five traits, we had a statistically significant positive, and for some traits, a fairly robust level of what we were calling differential meta-accuracy. Okay. Um, again, there were a number of um, other kind of interesting facets to the finding, but that, or to our, to our findings, but that was, I thought, I think the most fundamental one, and the one that um, I thought was uh, most interesting. Um, so actually, if we go back to then that prevailing wisdom, which again, currently for the last 20 or 30 years has been people actually don't seem to have a very good sense of who sees them as higher low on a given trait. I think that's wrong. I think that the data that we, we show is if you kind of give people a fair test where judges actually do have different impressions, then people do a pretty good job of detecting that, of being aware of that, of being accurate in their meta-perceptions. So I think that in fact, people have pretty good uh, insight into how they are uniquely perceived by other people. Again, if indeed those people have unique views if it's a fair test. Okay, so just to wrap up a little bit, um, in general, from this set of findings, and certainly we're not the, um, my, my students and I, my colleagues and I aren't the only people who will be looking at these kinds of questions, but if you look at the, the, the kind of work that I talked about and, and others, then in general, I think it's fair to say that we see ourselves more or less, as we're seen by others, of course, not perfectly so, <laughs> there's not perfect agreement, but more or less, we also, the reciprocal of that, we, as judges, we see others more or less as they see themselves. Um, when we look at the consensus um, findings, we more or less agree with each other about a third person. Um, even if, again, we've, we've never, even if you and I have never met, and even if we know that person from perhaps dramatically different social contexts. And then finally, with the media-accuracy results, we're actually pretty reasonably good at knowing who sees us as high or low on specific traits, how we're seen by other people. 
Um, again, those are kind of general findings. What, as a personality psychologist, I'm also kind of interested in are differences between people and differences between traits. Again, some people are easier to read than others. Some people may be better judges of personality learners. I mean, you hear that all the time, right? Oh, I'm a good judge of personality. Oh, really? <laughs> Is there any evidence of that? Um, that's an interesting psychological question. So if you're an undergraduate looking for research ideas, then there you go. Or a graduate student looking for research ideas. The good judge. It's kind of an interesting question. And certainly, um, if we take the Michael Scott example, some people actually do seem to be much, much, much worse at understanding other people. Um, if we go back to the importance and implications of these findings, again, I won't, I won't go into all of this stuff, but um, I think, again, from these types of findings, um, I feel like our understanding of social cognition and how we think about ourselves and other people is probably um, a, little, uh, a little better um, than is sometimes acknowledged in the personality and social psychology literature. We get it right pretty well, actually, when you look at real people in real relationships and real interactions doing and making real judgments. We're actually not too bad at it. Um, also, I think, as, again, from a personality perspective, some of this work, um, I think, is pretty good evidence that personality exists and has effects on behavior across situations and across time. That, for a lot of people, that may seem like kind of like, well, <laughs> but actually, some of you are probably familiar. That was actually a, quite a point of contention, um, particularly in the 60s and 70s. Um, the idea that personality exists was uh, uh, almost dismissed as uh, clearly um, uh, not a reasonable uh, belief. Um, so I think that, again, indirectly, this stuff, uh, this kind of work, um, certainly suggests that, that personality does exist. So as a personality psychologist, I'm glad to, to hear that. Um, uh, we're, we're continuing to do this kind of work. Um, some, uh, with, again, some students and some colleagues. Um, we are currently look, uh, collecting data um, with borderline personality disorder, as, as again, Pat mentioned. Um, and part of what we're looking at that um, is gonna be uh, personality perception. Borderline is interesting in this context because um, if you're familiar with borderline personality disorder, um, it's uh, characterized by really volatile social relationships, among other things. Um, um, perceptions or, or understandings of others where at one point, you think your partner is the most wonderful person, and the next minute, you know, you hate that person. So the understanding uh, agreement and perceptions going both ways is uh, going to be potentially interesting here. Um, we also have a, um, a, uh, uh, a grant to look at the perception of morally relevant personality traits. And this is kind of interesting. Um, as I, I've come to learn, I, I'm not a philosopher, but as I, I've come to learn, one of the people on this project is a philosopher, actually. But, um, in the world of philosophy, contemporary philosophy, um, there, there's a uh, prevailing belief that whether or not you act in a morally, um, uh, in a moral way, has nothing to do with who you are. It's, there's no such thing as a moral person or an immoral person. Whether or not you act morally has something totally to do with the situation. Are you in a good mood? Okay, well maybe you'll act morally. Have you been, um, did someone compliment you? Well, maybe you'll act morally. Did you get a nickel? Well, maybe you'll act morally. <laughs> it has nothing to do with who you are. So again, um, this actually kind of goes back to the 60s and 70s of personality psychology of does it exist? Is there such a thing as a moral personality? So again, it's, I think it'll be really kind of interesting to, um, to look at that uh, morally relevant personality traits. Okay, so I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Um, I will say uh, thank you in two ways. <laughs> Um, and uh, one of which is, again, uh, I, I really appreciate the invitation to be here. This is, this is really um, just very cool that, that the department is doing this, and I'm, I'm honored and, and very happy to be here, so thank you for that. And also to, to thank you um, to the faculty um, for the training that I got here, 
It certainly has set the trajectory for, for my career. Um, and I'd like to um, thank in particular uh, Doug Klieger and Deb Konjewski, um, who I worked with uh, uh, most closely here. So uh, thank you all very much. And I don't know if we have time for questions or not, but I will say in, in perhaps transitioning on that our next speaker is this handsome devil right here <laughs> in the class uh, in glasses, uh, the current Dr. Russ Romeo. He was not Dr. Ro Russ Romeo at that point. So. Okay. Uh, question, I don't know if we have time for we questions. Have time for a quick questions. Okay. A couple quick questions. Yeah, John. Which were the two traits that, as soon as you there were two traits that I Yeah. I'll go back to that real quick. Oops, sorry, just lost it. So actually there are three. It was conscientiousness, emotional stability, and agreeableness. We got the, and I, you know, we, we, we did, I have to acknowledge, we, we didn't hypothesize that. That wasn't the main thrust of our study. Um, but if you, if you think that's something, you know, we, we did kind of speculate about that after the fact, about, you know, if this is a replicable finding that these three traits, conscientiousness, emotional stability, and agreeableness in particular, really did have a somewhat higher meta-accuracy, then um, we uh, were thinking about those particular traits as being what are often called communal traits. They're much more related to interpersonal interaction or kind of smooth functioning. Obviously, um, extroversions related to interaction, but not necessarily kind of a smooth functioning. So if you're kind of reliable, conscientious, if you're friendly and agreeable, those, and, and if you're not emotionally volatile, those things, people have talked about as being particularly important for kind of a smooth, dyadic, and interpersonal functioning. So, yeah. That, right. 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 Yeah. One of the things we did in the paper, actually, that came out was to look at um, the the actual perceptions, kind of the consensus thing. To what degree did the the the, the judges in those situations have very you know similar to similar? And um, I'll have to go back and look. I don't remember if we found kind of pattern that corresponded with this pattern. I don't remember that we did. That doesn't mean we that we didn't. <laughs> but but that's interesting. I could um, I could go back and take a look at that and see if kind of the pattern of actual agreement varied in this way as well, because that could be part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, one, one response is the way we, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but the way we operationalize meta-accuracy, we could not look at that because meta-accuracy was not defined for every judge. So it's not like how, how accurately does your mom know. That said, we could do that. Um, we, could, we could take that person-centered approach and, and, and do that for every um, judge, every judge-target pair. Um, and that would certainly be an interesting thing to do. We haven't looked at that yet. Um, but. Um, uh, that's certainly something that could be done, taking a different approach <laughs> to that question. Actually, in these data, too. So if you have some time and you want something extra to do, <laughs> let me know. Thanks, Mike. That's okay, great. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I was pretty happy. Okay, well, this has been awesome. And we have uh, one more treat left. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Russell Romeo, who is assistant professor at Bernard College of Columbia University. Um, Dr. Romeo 
uh, started at Edinburgh University, um, and my understanding is that he went there to study music theory and classical guitar. <laughs> Uh, but somehow was bitten by the same bug that has bitten so many of us in this room and possibly is biting some of you today. Wouldn't that be great? So he, he was a psychology major at Edinburgh where they have, a, have and still had and still have a, a very good psychology department. And then came to us in the mid-90s, which if you if you look carefully at your program, you'll 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 notice that. We have David Penn and, and, and Mike Furr and Lance Craigsfeld, as well as Russ Romeo from the mid-90s in our graduate program. So that was one of our golden eras in the program. Um, after completing his thesis here with, uh, with Inga, uh, Dr. Romeo went to uh, Michigan State University, Ghost Party, uh, where he uh, was in the neuroscience and psychology uh, program and, and worked in the lab of, of Cheryl Sisk, and then did a postdoc from about 2001 to 2007 at Rockefeller University in the laboratory of Bruce McEwen. Uh, Ross has, at this young stage of his career, over 60 published journal articles uh, and, and, and review papers in, in a variety of, of journals, uh, just to give you a sense. Uh, they include the Journal of Neuroscience, Hormones and Behavior, Behavioral Neuroscience, Developmental Psychobiology, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He, uh, his work has been supported by the National Institutes of Health, as well as the National Science Foundation. He's won Young Investigator Awards from uh, at least three different uh, societies. Is on the editorial board. Uh, of developmental psychobiology and has reviewed uh, papers for publication as a reviewer for, uh, I stopped counting at 25 different journals. Um, the other thing that struck me about Dr. Romeo's uh, via is that apparently recently he was featured on the PBS uh, NewsHour um, using zombies to teach neuroscience. So hopefully we're gonna get some of that this afternoon. Dr. Romeo is going to tell us about adolescent development and the sculpting of the stress response. Well, I have to come clean that, that thing on the veto about the uh, um, I thought the PBS special was Warby commenting on somebody who uses the uh, zombies as a way of teaching neuroscience. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting concept that somebody actually at Harvard that's doing that. Um, so first of all, I'd like to begin by uh, thanking Mike for that introduction. Um, thank you very much. And also um, Tom and the planning committee for the invitation to participate uh, in this celebration. It's a sincere pleasure uh, to come back and reconnect with the faculty and some of my classmates um, and also to meet the new faculty and uh, the new uh, crop of students um, that's here. So again, thank you very, very much. Um, by way of introduction, I just want to tell you what my lab is sort of generally interested in. And what we're interested in is the significant change in the way that we respond to stressors um, and 
how reactive we are to stressors throughout our lifespan. And how we react and respond to stressors changes pretty dramatically um, as we progress through our lifespan. Uh, so for instance, uh, during the neonatal stage of development, many species, um, including ourselves, go through uh, something called a stress hypo-responsive period. And that is when an organism um, would, like an adult organism, would undergo a, a physical or psychological challenge, they mount a very significant uh, hormonal stress response. But in neonates, during this hypo-responsive period, they show very dampened um, stress responses. And this dampening of the stress response has been proposed to protect the developing a neonate from some of the harmful effects of the stress-related hormones, particularly in the context of the developing brain. Um, conversely, we know uh, during uh, old age, the stress response comes a bit dysfunctional, and that is when it's engaged, it tends to overshoot. Um, that is, we tend to secrete more hormones that are necessary to deal with the challenge. And once the system has been engaged, uh, it takes uh, longer to kind of come back down to baseline. It takes a while to return back to its set point. And this prolonged exposure to the stress-related hormones has been posited to contribute to the wear and tear that happens in our organ systems, including our brain, as we, uh, as we age. Now, we know a fair amount about what types of factors regulate stress response in an adult organism. In fact, that's where the lion's share of the data is, um, or data are. Uh, this is things like the sex of the individual, the time of day that they undergo stress, the experiences they've had with stress. We know how all those factors modulate the stress uh, response system. But we know very, very little about what happens during the pubertal or adolescent stage of development. Uh, in fact, probably prior to 2000, um, the number of empirical papers looking at adolescent development of stress reactivity um, could be probably numbered uh, under a dozen. So why I'm interested in this and why I'm surprised that we don't know much about it is that we do know that puberty and adolescence um, is a period of developmental vulnerabilities. And that's, it's a time when a lot of bad things start to happen. For instance, the emergence of various psychopathologies show a marked increase during this time, like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and eating disorders. Um, certainly things like risk-taking behaviors increase dramatically during this time, not the least of which are things like drug use and, uh, drug use and abuse. And we also know um, that stressors change um, pretty substantially during this time, not just the quality of them, but the quantity of them. And there is a, a number of reports in the literature showing a very strong uh, positive correlation between stress burden, that is how much stress one is undergoing, and the development, uh, the stress burden during adolescence specifically, and the development of certain psychopathologies like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and drug use and abuse. Despite this really strong uh, correlation, we don't really know what exactly is mediating um, these effects of stress on the adolescent and their present and future um, function or dysfunction. This has led me and a number of other people interested in this area to start looking at adolescence um, uh, perhaps as uh, a perfect storm. And that is we have uh, the adolescent individual who is certainly changing a lot somatically, that is their body's changing, uh, psychosocially they're changing. But we also know, uh, particularly from a lot of the neuroimaging work that's been done recently over the last 10, 15 years, that the adolescent brain is still undergoing some profound development during this time. We usually think sort of brain development is pretty much done by the childhood age. Um, but we do know that this brain maturation process 
continues on uh, well into old age, but there is a sort of a, a, a peak of, of development uh, that occurs during that adolescent stage. Um, and the idea is because there's so many changes going on, the brain is still maturing, what is the role of stress and stress-related hormones? For those of you who aren't steroid biochemists, this is uh, the steroid structure or the chemical structure of cortisol, which is the major circulating uh, stress-related uh, hormone in our, in our bodies, in primates such as ourselves. so it's cortisol. So when you start putting this all together, where you have a lot of changes going on, a maturing brain, and the quantity and quality of stressors, um, sort of changing quite a bit, what sorts of influence does this have on the developing organism and what does that mean for their physiology and behavior? Well, first of all, let me explain very quickly what the hormonal stress response is. Um, uh, Lance yesterday had talked about the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Um, this one is a little bit different. It's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or the HPA, but it works very similarly to the HPG. And that is when an individual encounters a challenge in their environment, whether it's a physical stressor or even a psychological stressor, uh, a group of cells in the hypothalamus, particularly in a group called the paraventricular nucleus, abbreviated as the PVN, when an organism undergoes a challenge, a group of cells in this brain region become active and start to produce and secrete uh, two neuropeptides, one called CRH and the other called AVP, which just stand for corticotropin releasing hormone and arginine vasopressin. When these new hormones are released, they go through the portal system from the hypothalamus into and stimulate the anterior pituitary to secrete another hormone called ACTH, which in turn then gets into our circulation and causes our adrenal glands, which are right on top of our kidneys, just to produce and secrete uh, cortisol, okay? Um, and this is the hormonal stress response, the neuroendocrine hormonal stress response. Now, much like the HPG axis that Lance presented yesterday, this uh, neuroendocrine axis also works through a negative feedback loop, and that is when cort levels rise in our blood. They then feed back up into the brain and actually at the level of the pituitary to reduce the production and secretion of CRH, AVP, and ACTH, so in effect, turning off the, the spigot. Because when you mount a stress response, it's good. You want to get those stress hormones up so you can deal with the challenge, but you also want to be able to turn them off, and that turns itself off through this negative feedback. I should also mention that in addition to the hormones acting at the level of the hypothalamus and the pituitary um, to negatively regulate the system, it can also do it indirectly through other uh, forebrain areas um, that are either cortical or limbic, so areas like hippocampus, amygdala, and prefrontal cortex, when they're stimulated by uh, cortisol, they can then um, indirectly lead to inhibition at the level of the hypothalamus to kind of slow down the response. Um, the thing about the stress response is there's sort of this yin and yang of it. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the sort of the double-edged sword, and that is we need the stress response in the short term. Those hormones that are released, the ACTH and the cort, um, they allow us to cope with the demands that are imposed by the stressor. And of course, this is very adaptive. We need it to survive, all right? So we need that hormonal release. But if it's chronically engaged, if you continually to engage this axis and you continually engage the secretion of cort, or you don't turn it off or regulate it properly, these same hormones can lead to wear and tear on our organ systems, uh, particularly the central nervous system. Uh, and this can lead to some very maladaptive effects. Okay, so in the short term, it might be adaptive, but if you chronically engage the system, things can start turning to the maladaptive side. And so basically, I always like to just to say, as a very simple way, you can't live without it, 
but you can't live well with too much of it. Right? So there's this constant balance that you need when it comes to the stress response. Now, I work in animals, and what's nice about working in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is that that axis which exists in us also exists in mice and rats and rhesus monkeys. So basically, no matter what species you're talking about, mammalian species you're talking about, this axis is basically the same thing. Same brain regions, same glands, same hormones, same uh, cascade, feedback, and even the same indirect pathways. Now, the major circulating stress-related hormone in uh, rodents is corticosterone. In primates, as it ourselves, it's cortisol, so it's slightly different. Um, but it has the same mechanism of action, binds to the same receptors, and basically in the same brain regions as well. So it's nice being able to use these sort of more basic models to kind of get into the idea of how factors like development influence stress reactivity. Another question I get a lot um, when I talk about stress in adolescence, because I'm talking about animals, is do rats actually go through adolescence? Um, first of all, I should say, I should just unpack some terminology here. Uh, puberty and adolescence, they're actually two distinguished uh, or two um, different uh, concepts and, and, and words with separate terms. Puberty is a very discrete physiological event, which is basically um, the growth spurt, uh, hormonal secretion, uh, and it's a very uh, sort of uh, measurable event. Adolescence, on the other hand, is more a um, catch-all term for the transition between childhood and adulthood. All right, so it's more of a sort of a wider, um, wider lens when you're talking about adolescence. But anyway, uh, rodents do go through puberty, and they go through something that would be, um, I guess, what we would consider an adolescence. And that is between 30 and 60 days of age, when they're about a month old, they undergo a number of somatic, physiological, behavioral, and neurobiological changes that are akin to puberty and adolescence in human and um, non-human primates. So for instance, uh, these rodents go through a growth spurt. So they're growing through sort of weaning and childhood, and then they hit this pubertal period, and they show a, a big uptick in growth. They show um, pretty profound increases in gonadal hormones, so the androgens in males and estradiol and progestins in females uh, increase dramatically during this month period in the rodent. Their behaviors uh, change, their social behaviors change, sort of similar how uh, us primates change, and that is their play behaviors kind of go down throughout the adolescent period. Uh, motivated behaviors like mating and uh, sometimes aggression start to rise. And even some of the changes in neuroanatomical structure uh, that we see in human adolescence, and I'll talk about this in a second, uh, we see very similar changes occurring in the rat brain and the mouse brain. So even the sort of central nervous system changes that occur are similar between the primates and rodents. So is it exactly modeling human adolescence? Clearly not, um, but I think it's a, a pretty good approximation so that we can sort of get down at a finer level of analysis at the sort of cellular and molecular level uh, and use these types of models to address these types of questions. Um, the first question I had when I um, started this research, actually I started it while I was at Rockefeller, um, was a very simple question, and that was, are the prepubertal adult stress responses different? And again, as I said, we didn't really know too much about this particular stage of development and how stress reactivity changed, so I wanted to basically start out very simple. I used uh, Sprague Dolly rats. This is uh, sort of the quintessential lab rat, um, very widely used in stress neurobiology research and in psychology research for that matter. 
We took them at two stages of development, either prepubertally at 30 days of age um, or in adulthood at 70 days of age. So we've kind of bookended the uh, pubertal and then the adolescent uh, stage. And what we did is we simply gave them a single 30-minute session of something we call restraint stress. Restraint stress is where you put these animals basically into a little mesh restrainer. It doesn't hurt them physically, but it limits their movement, um, sort of something akin to maybe a straitjacket. And they find this very stressful and they mount a very nice hormonal stress response, but we can time it and control it and we can basically terminate it at the appropriate time so that we can actually control these variables. After the 30-minute session of restraint, we measured their hormone levels in the blood, either before that restraint, stress, uh, restraint ses session, um, immediately after it was over, and even um, a half hour, hour, and two hours after the stressor had been terminated to look at basal, basically the peak, and even the recovery of the response. So what did we find? Um, First of all, let me orient you to this figure. The y-axis is corticosterone. Remember, this is the uh, major circulating stress-related hormone in rodents. Uh, this would be sort of akin to the, the cortisol in, in primates. And on the uh, x here, we have time. And then the dotted line with the white circles, we have the prepubertal animals. And the solid line with the black circles are the adults. All right, so what we found was basal, the resting level of corticosterone, was similar between the two ages. And when you give them this 30-minute session of restraint, at both ages, there's a pretty um, significant increase in their quartz secretion. But where we start to find the difference is in the recovery. And that is once the stressor has been terminated, so they're removed from the restraining device, they're put back in their home cage, what we see is that the adults within about 30 minutes start to return back to baseline, while the prepubertal animals are still showing a very high response. It's almost like they're still being restrained. But remember, they're out of the restrainer at this point. An hour after, the adults are basically back down to baseline. The juveniles are still showing um, a relatively high response. Now, by two hours, they go back down to baseline. So it's not if the juvenile animals continue to show a stress response for like the next you know, day or week or whatever. But what these data show is that the stress response takes about 45 to 60 minutes longer to return to baseline in the prepubertal animals compared to the adults. Now, myself and a, a number of other labs over the years have, have looked at this phenomenon in many different um, uh, sort of ways and variations on themes. Uh, I can tell you that, oh, these data were drawn from male rats. We know this also happens in females. So if you look at prepubertal female rats, they too show a protracted response compared to adult females. It happens with multiple strains. We also know it happens in multiple species. Uh, this was restraint stress, but we know we've done it in multiple stress paradigms. So everything from very physiological stressors like hypoxia, that is if you give them some sort of ether inhalation, so they'll mount a very robust physiological stress response. And even from the psychological, just sort of socially isolating them. Um, so basically, no matter what paradigm we've looked at, this type of, uh, of mode of results is what we see, a protracted response in the prepubertal animals. And I should also mention that we see this in both their light and the dark phases. Again, uh, rodents are nocturnal. These data were derived when they were during the day. This is when they're usually inactive. But we've also done these experiments during their night, and we see the same thing. OK, so yes, OK. What I've told you at this point is an, a single discrete event, a single acute stressor. What happens if you start um, challenging the system more chronically? Okay, what if you have this sort of overhanging kind of stressor in your life and you get this sort of repeated stressor over and over and over again? So what happens when you start layering on experience? 
Well, in adults, what happens, uh, and again, we know this from the, the uh, phenomenal amount of research that's gone on over the last 50 years in this area. We know, for instance, under acute conditions, again, a one discrete event, uh, this is just a sort of a cartoon of a stylized response. Here's the stressor, you get a nice peak. Um, when it's removed, you get a recovery and it comes back down to baseline, usually in about 30, 40 minutes, okay? That's normal. If you continue to give uh, a stressor, a repeated stressor, time after time after time, what ends up happening is that the organism starts to habituate. You start to see the court levels not go so high and they return back to baseline at about the same amount of time. So if you think about area under the curve, they're being exposed to sort of the less, uh, lesser amounts of the, of the stress-related hormone, okay? So there's this classic habituation. Now this is in adults. Now, we knew that the prepubertal adult animals differed uh, very much on the recovery. We wanted to ask the question next, well, what happens when you start layering on experience and does that modulate or, or, or affect uh, the response? So, in this experiment, we, um, first group I'm showing you are just the animals that are exposed to a single acute stress. So this is replicating what we and others had seen before. That is, you give them a brief 30-minute session of restraint Juvenile adults are same basal, they peak at about the same height, but it's in the recovery where you get this big divergence. Okay, so what happens when you give them a repeated exposure? Well, what we found was something very surprising. Um, first of all, we did see the predicted habituation response in adults. And I should say this dotted line here is just sort of an arbitrary line showing you where the peak is um, in response to acute stress. And although we see habituation in the adults, um, we do not see habituation in the juveniles. In fact, what we see is a sensitization. They actually go significantly higher than they do when they just experienced it for the first time. Okay, so adults are showing the habituation where juveniles are actually showing this sensitization, showing a very nice interaction between age and experience. So just to summarize some of the data I've talked about thus far, uh, in response to acute stress, Prepubertal animals show an extended hormonal response. However, under repeated stress conditions, adults display habituation response, while prepubertal uh, animals show sensitization. And thus, the plasticity exhibited by the HPA axis uh, in response to stress is dependent upon both the age and experience of the animal. Okay? But basically what this tells us is that under acute conditions and even under repeated conditions, it looks as if the adolescent or prepubertal animal is experiencing greater or more prolonged hormonal stress responses. Okay? And I should mention that we've also done these uh, experiments in animals that were sort of in the mid-pubertal stage, and they do show this protracted response, and they do show this sensitization to repeated stressors. So it does seem to happen in adolescence. So you've got these different stress responses. Well, what about the brain? I was saying the brain is undergoing some pretty significant maturation during this time. And uh, what I just want to show you very quickly is some data. I'm afraid it got cut off. These are from um, Jay Geed, who's at the National Institutes of, of Health. And he's been doing a very uh, beautiful study over the last 15 years there, basically imaging kids starting around five, six years of age. And he's been imaging these kids, the same kids, every two years as they progress through puberty, adolescence, and now even into young adulthood. So it's a very rich data set he's been collecting over the years. Um, and he kind of started off on this project, my understanding was that he wasn't predicting huge changes, uh, maybe some you know, changes here and there as, as we develop. But 
what, what we found was actually um, something quite surprising, or what he found was something quite surprising. On the top there, what you see is uh, frontal gray matter. So this is in the frontal lobes, and this is gray matter volume. Gray matter is the, basically the cell bodies and the synapses of cells, so this is basically where the neurons are doing all their communication. And what you see there in the blue line is uh, for boys, and the red line are girls, and the, these uh, sort of lighter lines are just the variance uh, along those means. And what he saw was pretty substantial changes in the volume of this gray matter volume. Uh, I'm sorry, changes in, in gray matter volume. And that is very early in childhood and early puberty and adolescence, there was an increase, which peaked at about the time of puberty, which is about 10 years in, in girls, about 11 and a half years in boys. But then remarkably, right around the time of puberty and going more into the latter stages of adolescence, he actually started to see a decrease in frontal gray matter. They called it cortical thinning. Uh, and this was uh, proposed, or the mechanism that was proposed to explain these results is that much like other times of development, perhaps what's going on is that the brain is making a lot of connections, and that's kind of like what the brain does during early development, and then after it sort of plateaus, it can kind of um, prune unnecessary connections away, and that's actually the way that Jay and his colleagues have interpreted this data to look at sort of synaptic pruning, the indicating that perhaps these circuits are becoming more specific or better honed. What he also saw was changes in white matter volume. Um, I think there was, this was actually the corpus callosum. I just forget where this was actually. Corpus callosum is, of course, the fiber tract that connects the left and right hemisphere. And here what they see is also significant changes during puberty and adolescence. Uh, and although these aren't uh, in the inverted U, these are more linear, what you are seeing is some pretty significant changes. Now, white matter are the uh, myelin sheaths that um, encase the axon, which are the projections of neurons. And when you have more white matter or more myelination, you get faster transmission. And the, um, what they were proposing that these data were, were, were uh, about was that maybe during puberty and adolescence, the transmission rates are getting better. So in addition to honing your circuits, they're also becoming sort of faster. Um, this is very at the gross level using uh, neuroimaging uh, techniques. In our lab and in, other, and other labs that are doing this type of work, we can get down to the more cellular level because now we're working in basically these animal models. We've been doing things like uh, we call dye filling, so we can actually get a little micro uh, pipette um, into a tissue slice, get into uh, an actual neuron, fill it with a dye. This is uh, lucifer yellow. And we can look under a fluorescent scope, and we can actually look at the structures of the neurons and measure things like how many processes they have, if you squint, you might be able to see these little protuberances that come off the dendrites. Those are called dendritic spines. This is where a lot of the excitatory neurotransmission occurs. And so we're looking at how these sort of gross changes might actually be manifest at the more cellular level. And I should mention that was a cell from the amygdala. Um, and then also, as uh, Lance talked about yesterday, we also know that the brain produces new cells on a daily basis. That process is called neurogenesis. It happens in a few locations of the brain. It doesn't happen everywhere. But one of the areas, it's uh, sort of a hot spot of neurogenesis, is an area called the dentate gyrus, which is in the hippocampal formation, which we know is very important in learning a memory from yesterday's uh, paper. And what we see here um, is a marker of neurogenesis. It's called DCX, or double cord, and It's just a marker that's in immature neurons. And what we see during this pubertal period from 30 to 45 to 90 days of age is actually a decrease, slight but significant, in the dentate gyrus when it comes to neurogenesis. Okay, so you're getting these changes in gray matter volume, white matter, and things like the frontal cortex. 
Um, we're looking at amygdala, and other people have been looking at the structure of the amygdala, and we're also seeing changes in things like neurogenesis in the hippocampus. Now, if you remember from one of my earlier slides, these areas, prefrontal cortex, amygdala, hippocampus, these are all the major targets of the HPA axis, right? These are also some of the areas that are showing the most significant maturation during this time. And also, they're the most sensitive to the stress-related hormones. In fact, if you look at the distribution of the receptors that are responsible for mediating the action of stress-related hormones like cortisol and corticosterone, those receptors are at the highest concentration in the prefrontal cortex, in the amygdala, and in the hippocampus. So this is what's leading myself and others to maybe perhaps think of this as the convergence of this sort of perfect storm. Different stress responses, a maturing brain that might be exquisitely sensitive to those stress-related hormones, okay? Well, do we have any evidence to suggest that adolescents might be a particularly sensitive time to stressors? So we started off in a, a series of experiments that were basically wondering about the adult ramifications of stress. That is, if you start exposing the organism to stress during adolescence, what happens sort of when they, they, they get to adulthood? What happens to their physiology and behavior? Um, we did this um, in a, a relatively simple experimental design. We had uh, four groups of animals uh, randomly assigned. We had animals that were in a control group. These were group housed. We house our animals three per cage. It's sort of standard facility rearing conditions. The second group, we had what was called group housed plus stress. These animals were housed three per cage, but they were also given one hour of restraint stress every day, every other day, throughout the whole period of adolescence, basically from 28 to 50 days of age, okay? Um, I should mention one hour of restraint stress every other day is a pretty mild stressor under most laboratory conditions, okay? So it's a, it's a pretty mild paradigm. The third group was isolation. These are animals that are just housed alone, okay? And then these animals are gregarious and they tend to be a little bit uh, stressed when they're given um, the social isolation condition. And the fourth group kind of had the worst of both worlds. They were both socially isolated, and every other day they were getting one hour of restrained stress throughout adolescence, okay? Once um, adolescence uh, ended, which is kind of arbitrary, um, we tested them in something called the four swim test, which is a, a behavioral test at animals to assess learned helpless behavior, or learned helpless like behavior. Um, I should mention there's many problems with the four swim test. Unfortunately, though, it's one of the gold standards used in pharmaceutical companies, and so a lot of people use it as a screen for depressive-like and learned helpless-like behaviors. That's why we used it. And then we um, sacrificed the animals in adulthood so that we can look at brain and, and uh, hormone levels. Okay, so what do we find when they go through this experience during adolescence? Well, first of all, in the four swim tests, what we find is that if the animals are exposed to any kind of stress, whether it's restraint, isolation, or the combination of the two, they show a greater latency to immobility, which in the four swim tests is indicative of a learned helpless-like behavioral phenotype. That is, they stop struggling in this four swim test. Um, it's, uh, again, uh, an, an index, if you will, of sort of um, learned helplessness. The amount, they time, the time they spend struggling uh, is lower in the animals that are stressed, and the converse, the time they spend immobile is higher for the animals that had experienced this stress. Also what we found was just the resting levels of cortisol, or corticosterone, sorry, these are the rats, we found elevated levels of corticosterone. Okay, so you can see whether they were experiencing the restraint, isolation, or both, they had elevated levels of resting corticosterone. 
we find these data interesting uh, and encouraging as perhaps a model because we know that a couple of the hallmarks of at least melancholic typic typical depression are feelings of uh, depressed mood, learned helplessness, and things like elevated HPA activity. But what I've shown you is that if they experience these stressors, they have these types of physiological and behavioral changes, but is the timing of the stress important? That is, what if you just gave that type of experience to adult animals? Do they show a similar change in their physiology and behavior? So we did basically the exact same experiment at the same time in adults. Again, same four groups, same length of time, and gave them the same tests and collected the tissue. What we see here was no significant effect of these relatively mild stressors on their four swim test behavior. And we found no real effects on the basal level of court secretion in these animals. So it's something about that event happening during adolescence which seems to be special. So restraint stress and isolation during adolescence lead to depressive-like behaviors, at least as indexed by this four swim test, and elevated basal levels of court. Conversely, we do not observe these same effects uh, if the stressors are administered during adulthood. And so together, these data indicate that adolescence may be a particularly sensitive uh, period in the context of emotional development. Now, I don't want to end on a sort of a doom and gloom um, that if you experience some stressors during adolescence, you sort of have problems. Um, we know that adolescence is not a disease, for instance. We know that a lot of us have navigated it just fine. Um, but one thing I'd like to say is that if the brain is perhaps sort of sensitive to this perfect storm and it's malleable and plastic and therefore sensitive to perturbations, then presumably that same plasticity should lend um, sort of a, a good positive outcome for interventions that might happen at this time. So if it's sensitive to perturbations, it should be sensitive to interventions to perhaps reverse or mitigate some of these effects. And in my last slide, what I want to show you is some data. So I, I love this paper. It was published a number of years ago in Science. Um, unfortunately, uh, you can't see it. It was published in 1978 in the journal Science, first author of TWIGS. Um, what they showed here in animals, again, was that if you lesion an area of the brain called the medial preoptic area, this is an area of the hypothalamus or anterior hypothalamus that's very important in male reproductive behavior. You need it to show the male reproductive behavior. If you lesion it, the behavior goes away. And that's what they show. If you lesion this, animal in, uh, lesion this area in prepubertal animals and let them grow up, what you see is the sham. So these are animals that didn't get the lesion. They show mating behavior just fine. But with the lesion, um, they show very little levels of mounting and intermissions and ejaculations. So very low levels of mating behavior. Well, what's really clever about this experiment is they had a second group that had the lesion prepubertally, but then were raised socially. That is, they weren't just given the surgery and then housed in isolation. They were given the surgery, sham or the lesion, but then given to sort of interactions with their social cage mate or social interactions with their cage mates. And what they saw was a complete reversal of this lesion on reproductive behavior. So very, um, I thought very incredible data showing that you could even reverse some of the adverse effects of something as drastic as a lesion. And I should mention, if you do the same experiment in adult animals, whether they're solitary or social, you never get the reproductive behavior back. So it seems again to be particular to this adolescent period where you can have some nice interventions. Um, I should also mention that this paper was done in Ernie Giral's lab. Um, 
and uh, which of course is uh, where Ing and Byron were trained. Uh, so I guess I've come full circle <laughs> showing these types of data. So my conclusions, what I hope I have been able to uh, tell you or convince you of uh, this afternoon is that the HPA responsiveness changes dramatically during the pubertal stage of development. These data also suggest adolescence is a particularly sensitive period to stress in the context of both uh, emotionality and HPA function. And given the interaction of stress in adolescence and psychological vulnerabilities and the potential for opportunities that may exist during this stage of development for interventions, it'll be imperative to further explore this crucial period of maturation. And in fact, I'm often reminded of one of my favorite quotes from um, Charles Dickens, in which he says something like, what you know, little man, is nothing, what you need to know, immense. And that's truly how I feel about this type of work at this point. We know very little um, about what's going on, um, and sort of just the tip of the iceberg, but it's also a very exciting time to get involved in this type of research. And um, I guess with that, what I want to say is I'd like to thank all the students who have done it, because it's really easy to get them interested in this. Um, I'd like to acknowledge all the students in my lab. Actually, I'm at Barnard College at Columbia, which is made up of, of um, it's an all-women's undergraduate college that's part of Columbia. Uh, so my lab is basically all undergraduates, and this data was collected, or these data were collected uh, mainly by the undergraduates in my lab. So I'd like to thank uh, my home institutions, Barnard College and Columbia University, for their support, the NSF and the NIMH for uh, financial support, as well as the Howard Hughes Science Pipeline, which is at Barnard at Columbia, which supports undergraduate um, research activities, and of course the whole host of students that actually made it all possible. So with that, I'd like to say thank you for your attention, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Thanks. Yeah, so the question is, what might be the adaptive significance of that differential response, which is the $65 million question, uh, honestly, or the $500,000 question if you're writing a grant. It's, it's really, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. The short answer is we don't know. But it's important to understand that the, the, the corticosterone and cortisol, the two major hormones, whether you're in a rodent or a primate, they come from a family of hormones called the glucocorticoids. And that name should cue you into what they do in addition to affecting the brain in our physiology. That is, they regulate energy balance. They help mobilize energy, um, particularly glucose. Uh, so my guess is that these differential responses have something to do with the demands that are placed on the organism as it's going through this maturational process. Of course, as an adolescent or a pubertal animal is developing, including ourselves, the system is likely going to try to preserve somatic and ponderal growth and also reproductive potential. And so my guess is it's responding in these ways, not sure why, um, but probably something that has to do with energetics that's going to allow the organism to cope with these demands that are being put on them, probably to preserve ponderable growth and perhaps uh, reproductive potential. But the answer is we still don't know. Yep. Yeah, these were rats, yep. That's correct. But and then now your your implications then for human development would be that uh, social interventions, right? In Perhaps, yep. But it, aren't some of the social situations, social problems, some of the worst stressors? Oh yeah. For humans. Oh yeah, that. Exactly. That brings up a very good point. So, social 
stressors um, are probably one of the most common stressors during adolescence. Um, but also one of the biggest buffers um, to stressors is also peer interactions. So it really comes down to are the peer interactions positive? Um, and I would think certainly in the context of these sort of animal experiments, one thing that they posited to, to mediate those changes were these animals show a lot of play behavior with one another as they're going. So perhaps having that interaction, sort of perhaps relearning a process that's kind of latent but is going to come up as they get adulthoods. Um, but that interaction was sort of a very pro-social positive interaction. But you're right in that if you go through perhaps a more antisocial or, or something that's a little bit more um, sort of negative in a sense, that could lead to even worse problems. So the interventions have to be... Um, I would imagine to be pretty pretty qualified. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We are out of time. Matt, you'll have to ask your question some other time. Um, oh, my Thank you very much. <laughs>